Well, it's Friday, and everybody knows it's Friday. It's time to go Inside EMS. This is the special Labor Day edition of Inside EMS. And with me always is the guy that we like to call KG, Kelly Grayson. It's been a really incredible week. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, it has, man. I'm I'm busy into my my third foray into to college, and uh, math, as usual, is is my my mortal enemy. I'm, I'm going to wrestle it to a standstill this time, though. Well, man, I think you can do it. And uh, if you need, I have two extra hands over here to help you get to ten. So just let me know if I can be a resource to you in any way. You know, Kelly, we talk all the time about the uh, you know the you know the internationally recognized inside EMS and. I was yeah. doing some looking the other day uh, at some of the numbers that we have, and there are 40, four zero different countries that listen to us. Even we got a, a couple of listeners in Iraq, the Netherlands, Korea, Belgium, Spain, uh, Germany, Kuwait has got a few, Puerto Rico. I don't know if that should be nice. its own country. That shouldn't be its own country, Puerto Rico, right? We got uh, Denmark. The U.S. protectorate, isn't it? So. All right. And then Canada, our... Uh, a country to the north, our friends to the north, where we don't need a northern border. Um, they're up there right next to us. And then, of course, the United States. But I thought that was kind of interesting. And, of course, uh, yeah. I'm trying to get back to it. I just want to touch on one more thing as far as the the top cities in the United States. What do you think is the top city that listens to us? Um, I would I would say it's not Pitkin, Louisiana, because it requires people <laughs> actually get on the Internet. Uh, and I think I'm about the only one on here. Um, Pitkin, Louisiana. Well, we got, uh, if we start at the bottom, we got Dayton, we got Las Vegas, and I'm trying to just running through some of the numbers. Memphis, Tennessee, Cleveland's at 35, Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, our next guest is coming to us from Austin, Texas, and they are at number 20. Uh, Portland, Oregon's number ten. Flint, Michigan, uh, Flint, Texas is number six. Uh, Houston, Texas is number three. Minneapolis, Minnesota. They listen to us on a regular basis in Minneapolis, number one. Oh, you betcha. That's that's awesome. I'm, right. I'm going to have to go out and change my business cards and remove the international man of mystery and replace it with internationally known podcaster. How about that? How about that? So. You know, I am excited today, Kelly, because we're going to talk about, um, you know, uh, we're going to talk about assault. We're going to talk about challenges that go against our EMS mm -hmm. providers, and we think about risk management, and we think about policies, we think about procedures, we think about all the things that try to help us keep our workforce safe, and, you know, it's been a challenge to do that, and uh, our next guest is really going to kind of talk about some of the endeavors that are going on in his system in Austin, Texas, and First, I want to say, you know, I've known uh, our next guest for some time. I consider him to be a friend. I consider him to be a mentor. We worked together when we were at MedStar for a long time, and, uh, you know, he taught me a lot of lessons. And uh, as a younger leader, I think some valuable lessons. Uh, one that I used on my own people was I would come into my office, and when I knew my chair was missing. Uh, that was his way of telling me that I'm spending too much time in the office. And that was just before, <laughs> that was just before I wrecked his car, which we won't talk about. But our next guest is coming to us, the chief of EMS from Austin Travis County EMS, my friend Ernie Rodriguez. Ernie, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Oh, you bet, Chris. I'm, I'm pretty excited about doing this. And uh, watching your great success is speaking loudly about my mentorship. Of course, I'm just kidding. You know, 
I'll, I'll, I'll not hold that against you, Ernie, um, for <laughs> inflicting Chris upon the rest of the profession. Um, I'm sure you're a fine guy otherwise. You know, Ernie, I do talk about you all the time. I talk about the lessons. And uh, if there is credit, certainly I do give it to you. I remember asking, I remember asking, I said, when do you think that I could be a great leader like you? And I remember what you told me. You said uh, you could do it now once you realize you can do it now. And uh, you made me believe it. So let's go ahead and uh, we'll give you a round of applause. But the reason you're here is because recently there was a survey that came out um, out of Austin Travis County EMS. You've been the chief there for some time. And the the title just grabs you where it says two-thirds of Austin paramedics report being assaulted at work. And you guys conducted an internal survey uh, that found that 22 communications employees have been verbally assaulted, 132 field medics have been physically assaulted. So, I mean, as you now as a leader, you start to think about, you know, the um, – you know the providers and and them being safe on the job, whether it's physically or verbally abused. I mean, what do you think the big challenge is in EMS here? That because uh, this isn't unique just to Austin Travis County EMS. Well, yeah, Chris. You know, I what got my attention to this. We've been talking about uh, culture of safety in EMS for lots of years now. Um, Brian McGuire has been one of the guys that's been writing about this, conducting research and looking at the number of times that. Uh, EMS personnel are injured while doing their jobs, and he's done some work on assaults, and, and many other researchers have as well, too. But everywhere that I go, uh, every conference where I have the opportunity to talk to other leaders that, that do what I do and others do, um, you know, we talk about assaults. And the same thing uh, is kind of emerging, and that's, yeah, they're going up. It seems like they're, they're happening more often. Uh, a lot of my people are being assaulted. And you hear this over and over again. And so that left me with, but what are we doing about it? It's one thing to recognize it, but what are we doing about it? So I decided to come back home after uh, EMS Today, as a matter of fact, and that was the last time I talked about it with some, some, of, my, uh, some of my buddies up there. Uh, I came home and decided we needed to, to have this conversation here and started talking to our safety guy. And he says, you know what, let's do a survey because we need to get a better understanding. And so we put this survey together and lost and uh, the the results that we got were were just glaring, and I thought, you know, this this is something we need to share. Everybody needs to see this. Uh, we're not doing very well in terms of the number of people that are being assaulted, and uh, I bet you that we're very similar to a lot of people that do what we do. Ernie, you say that that uh, that you note that assaults uh, on EMS providers have been rising in recent years, and that's something Chris and I have debated on the show before. Uh, I've always taken the tack that I don't know that it's necessarily any more commonplace. It's just that we hear about it more now. It's more uh, it's more um, reported, uh, not necessarily more prevalent. Um, but why? It, and and Austin survey seems to run contrary to my own beliefs on the on the subject. Why do you think that the the incidence of assaults upon EMS for, uh, providers is on the rise? Well, you know, I wish I knew the the straight answer to that. Um, all I can all I can refer to is some of the things that we're seeing happening in the world, and we're seeing the rate of violence increase in the world. Yeah. We're seeing uh, we're talking more and more and more about uh, people with mental health not receiving the type of care that they need, um, and we're seeing more people solve problems through aggression. 
Um, and I, I think that's we're just seeing uh, how it's affecting our particular industry. And, and I think it's just the general rise in, in uh, maybe hostility uh, that's mm-hmm. happening around us, and, and we're just in the middle of it. Yeah, one of the things that I, yeah, I had the opportunity to look over the survey, I had the opportunity to kind of see some of the, you know, the questions that were asked, and, you know, it seemed that you really covered a lot. And I know that you guys do training when it comes to um, situational awareness, uh, self-defense training. These are all your folks that go through that. So we talk about uh, de-escalation. We talk about, um, you know, how to deal with uh, potential aggressive behavior. You know, even though we're talking about that your folks are getting assaulted verbally and physically, did it help? I mean, because it, it makes no difference that uh, they have this training. Is it still going to happen anyway? Well, I, you know, I think that's part of the reality here that we're dealing with. And um, we do see a lot of opportunities that, that come about where our medics are able to avoid situations mm-hmm. with, by recognizing things early and stuff. Uh, but I think some things uh, are going to happen. And In fact, uh, last week while I was writing a, an article about this subject, I got a text alert telling me that another one of our medics was assaulted. And this is a case where uh, the medic is transporting someone to the hospital the person unbuckles themselves, turns around on the stretcher, punches the medic three or four times, and the medic switches into his self-defense mode and, and uh, neutralizes the situation. This is happening. Even the best training that we're providing doesn't seem to, to prevent anything. Um, and what, what we're thinking now is that maybe the, the training needs to focus a little bit more on identification of early signs of aggressive behavior. So when you see those signs that somebody may become aggressive, what steps might we be able to take? And I don't have the answer to that just yet either, but that's one of the things we're working on. Um, Preparing uh, medics uh, by helping them develop escape plans. What is your escape plan when somebody decides that they want to take out their their aggressions on you? Uh, How can you do some threat avoidance? Might you change your posture? Might you change your voice? Might you move to a different location? What Mm -hmm can you do for that and what kind of de-escalation techniques are you equipped with and these are some of the things that we thought yes we do 100% of our of our medics get get that training but are we doing enough have we included enough uh, psychology in it have we have we done some predictive behavior stuff in there uh, are there enough uh, scenarios where you've gotten to practice these so there, I think there's some room for improvement inside of the training program Artie, you note that, that early detection uh, is key in, in avoiding many of those situations, recognizing potentially violent uh, behaviors before they occur. Um, what percentage-wise would you say is the percentage of, of violent patients we get that really have no medical issues? They merely have a, a psychiatric issue or they're intoxicated or, or chemically enhanced in some way, yet they need very little uh, medical treatment. Uh, and, and if that if that number is fairly high, um, what do you think about just uh, our EMS professionals uh, really the the best um, way to deal with that sort of thing, or is that something that the police need to be handling more often than they do? Well, you know that it's funny you bring that up um, because uh, one of our observations is is that we do have a large number of of persons that we're providing services to um, that have aggressive behavior and have very minor underlying medical conditions. 
Yeah. And so you begin to wonder, you know, do they need to be in an ambulance in the first place? Or is there a different method for, for providing care for them? Or do we have to reevaluate and approach this thing from a whole different uh, perspective and work on their mental health needs and that they may have a very minor medical situation going on that's, that's a way lower priority than their mental health needs? And so I think it's, it's going to be an adjustment in our approach, an adjustment in the way that we think and consider our patients. I think as medics, we walk in and we're looking for that medical clue. And mm-hmm. we'll see what it is that we can do to assess our person and, and start our medical interventions. And we put mental health and their aggressive behavior or, or whatever type of other behavioral situation they're having, that kind of becomes second priority to us. Maybe we need to flip that in certain cases where we walk in and say, okay, this is a behavioral thing. Let's start there and work our way to the medical. You know, so I had the opportunity to look at the survey. You know, you send it out to 445 field personnel, 50 comp personnel. You had 47% of those individuals respond, which I think is amazing uh, for any survey. And, of course, it breaks down as the male, female, tenure in the field, etc., but I guess my question for you is, what was the big thing for you? I mean, that you had the opportunity to look at these results and you sat back in your chair and said, uh, oh my gosh, uh, look what we have here. Well, I, the biggest thing that, that stuck out to me uh, was a question of, of culture. Um, you may have noticed in the survey that we asked questions about um, whether uh, they thought that uh, being assaulted while doing their job in EMS was an unavoidable risk. And a huge number uh, agreed with that. Uh, 69% of our personnel in the field agreed that assaults are an unavoidable risk of working in EMS. And 94% of our comm personnel agreed that uh, having a verbal assault while they're doing their job is an unavoidable risk. And that speaks really loudly to our culture. So not only are we being assaulted frequently, uh, we're accepting it and we're accepting it as part of the job. And, and I think that's where, if we don't steer differently, we could go wrong, terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, the, the other, the things that will continue is a continued escalation of these things. And we don't want that to happen because the next newspaper article is going to be about a death uh, of a medic killed by an assault, and we don't want that. So we need to start changing our mindset before we can solve any problems before we can change training, before we can do any kind of early recognition, we, we need to begin to believe that we can prevent these things. And we need to work in that direction. You know, I just want to be able to follow on to that. And, and you know, it's amazing that EMS professionals are just saying that assault is just part of their duty. It's just part of their job now. And I think that's something that really needs to wake us up, you know. So if we think about Austin Travis County EMS, Ernie, you know, one of the largest, you know, leads by example, we need to be able to take the results of this survey and do something about it. I mean, not just not just on a system-wide basis, but on a but on a career field basis. I mean, we've been talking about this for a long time. So I guess my question to you is now that we have the results of your survey, what is it that we can do? Uh, to make a difference in our own career field. Yeah, that's my biggest fear, Chris. Uh, I'm really worried that if we don't get a handle on this and if we don't find better ways to deal with individuals who are who are feeling aggressive and want to take it out on our personnel, that we're going to be going to more funerals 
And I don't want that to happen. Uh, you know, for me, that's that's something that I, I never want to see in my organization or anywhere in the U.S. Uh, where where medics are being assaulted and killed uh, just trying to do their jobs. That, that should not be a condition of employment for EMS. You know, and, and going to an EMS funeral because of an assault or a, a, is a sentinel event, but but let's not let's not fail to recognize the the more commonplace and, and probably even more damaging thing is is just the sense of futility that that arises from you know the vast majority of your workforce thinking that that hey this is the the profession we're in we get assaulted all the time um, you, you know we we used to think that way about fatigue in EMS. And, and there's been a culture shift in that regard, and, and uh, Austin Travis County has been a, uh, an industry leader in that, in addressing the issue of, of uh, fatigue and overwork and shift length and that sort of thing. And, and it would seem to me that that you know th- this acceptance. I, I think there's a there's a, a very bright line between acceptance and recognizing the futility of something. And the recognizing the futility of something is, is is where we don't want to tread, where where you've gotten to where your workforce just says, eh, they throw up their hands and go, you know, that's just it. Um, ultimately, those people are going to leave EMS, not just Austin Travis County EMS, but uh, EMS as a profession, because there's only so much of that sort of thing you can you can uh, deal with. My question one of the things that struck me in your in your survey, I'm reading your survey here, and you talk about the the unavoidable risk of verbal and physical assaults. Um, in the in the uh, physical assaults, uh, in the the comm section, uh, it says not applicable, and in the verbal assaults in the field section, it says not applicable. I'm just wondering um, how much better uh, that the comm center and how much better the field would be. Uh, in anticipating or, or in empathizing with the, the guy on the other side of the radio console uh, in the, the job stresses and whatnot that they face, if, that, if those results were, were tabulated as well. You see where I'm going with this? It's, you know, if you don't ask your communications staff uh, what their, their thoughts are on, on physical assaults being an unavoidable risk, how do you know that they appreciate the risk uh, to the degree that the that the field staff does? Yeah, that, that's a that's a good thing that you point out. You're adept at reading surveys, I guess, and, and research. One of the things that we discovered as we were tabulating these things is that there's some questions we should have asked but did not. And so in those cases, we put uh, the uh, the NA sort of a thing. We simply did not ask them that question. And one of the things we thought about doing is going back and and asking more broadly about the different types of assaults that are being experienced. Uh, as we looked at the research that's out there, uh, we found a group that identified six different types of assaults that are occurring inside of the EMS industry. Um, we did not discover that until after we did our survey. Had we done that, we might have we might have had a little bit better questioning uh, on our survey. Uh, but we just we just didn't get that far. Like so like it. like any research project, <laughs> you, you go back and go, oh, I shoulda, woulda, coulda. Yeah, but but I do think that's important because you know I, I think part of what we're trying to do here is to share our our lessons learned. Um, we are far from perfect, 
And, and uh, I think it's better if, if we take our time and share what we're learning so that people don't make the same mistakes that we made. Um, one of the things that I found, I was reading one of Brian McGuire's uh, papers that he published in 2017, where it's talking about we're, we're, we're doing a lot of research on uh, assaults in emergency medical services. We're recognizing the numbers, but nobody's doing research on the interventions. So most of the interventions that are being put into place by different providers have absolutely no research on which to base what they're doing. And that's something that, that we need to come back and, and correct. So that's another reason that we're uh, trying to push out this information is let's learn from this. Then let's see what we can do about it. And then let's share that and see if it works so that uh, we can learn a better, more complete lesson about the whole subject. Yeah, but if we talk about this from a survey standpoint, you know, I think that one of the things that we need to know is that this is this is really great work. And sure, I think as we move forward, we think about, you know, what did we need to ask or, you know, what could could we have asked? But, you know, now that we have this data, I mean, I think it's a great start for people to be able to utilize it. But let me go ahead and, and ask a question or maybe just make a statement and get your opinions about it. You know, one of the things that I think we need to be able to do is make assaults on EMS providers a felony, just like it's similar to that of our police brethren. If you're going to abuse, if you're going to assault an EMS provider, if you're going to assault a, a first responder a firefighter, um, I think that that needs to be a, a felony. And you need to be able to maybe have some mandatory uh, sentence for that. You know, that they're talking about now the people who are passing these school buses that, you know, if you're caught uh, passing a school bus, you may lose your license for a year. Well, you know what? If you hit a first responder, if you hit a, uh, you know, a uh, somebody who's in public safety, maybe it's a, a mandatory six months in jail or something like that. So, you know, I, I just don't think that we have this as part of our uh, culture. But I think what we need to do is is be able to, you know, get our lawmakers behind us to say, you know what, hit an EMS provider, hit a firefighter, just like when you hit a police officer, it's a felony. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and I would say there, there's something that we all can do about this, uh, but none of us are. Uh, one of them is that we, we are not gathering information about assaults across our universe. So uh, uh, we all know and have experienced uh, assaults, and uh, they've been maybe reported, maybe not reported. We find that a lot of them are not reported uh, by individuals or by their agencies. And can you imagine if we had a national database that we were all using where we would report all of our assaults. And if that number didn't scare us and cause changes in laws like you're suggesting, then I don't know what would. Uh, but that's another one of the lessons that we need to learn is that there's power in numbers and we're simply not flexing our muscles. I, I would imagine that underreporting has a lot to do with, uh, with the, the sense of resignation and, and the sense of inevitable inevitability that that your uh, that your survey demonstrated where where so many of your workforce think that it's a uh, it's part of the job you know so why even hey, that's that's just the business why even uh, make a big fuss about it um, but uh, we do need to start making a fuss about it and Chris I, I think uh, making it a felony with mandatory sentencing is is perfect uh, and add one more uh, thing to it is uh, intoxication should not be a mitigating factor I, I strongly agree with that. So another group that I was very concerned about when I looked at the results from the survey had to do with our communications personnel. 
uh, where 86% of them uh, said that they had been verbally assaulted in the last two years. And uh, some of the comments that I got from them when I was talking to them about it uh, were that, well, what can we do about it? We can't hang up. We have to finish the call. We have to get the information and we have to send a, a response. Um, and so uh, they feel like they're strapped to that to that call. Um, they're listening to, to the call in their ear and they have to finish the information gathering. And in between all of that, they're getting cussed out and they're getting yelled at and treated very badly and called all kinds of things. And so I think in situations like that, um, we have to, uh, the only thing I could think to say uh, when an employee is looking right at me saying that is I can't allow you to go home believing any of the things you've just been called uh, because none of those things are true. And so in some cases, like, like verbal assaults on dispatchers, uh, we may not be able to prevent them but we certainly don't have to let our people go home believing those things. And I think it's a different approach uh, for, for different situations. Yeah, and I find this really interesting because when we talk about this from a communication standpoint, I guess I really don't understand it in the sense that, you know, they're, they're trying to get help on the other side of that phone from the dispatcher. And I don't understand. I mean, did you get any thought of why, um, you know, they're being verbally abused? Is it the fact that they're asking too much questions? You know, is it the stress of what's going on around them? And I mean, did you get any sense of what the catalyst was as to why, you know, these uh, dispatchers are being verbally abused on the job? So we actually asked that. We asked, uh, we asked the uh, participants of the survey to try to tell us uh, what they thought were the, the causes of that. And um, the communications personnel responded that they believed um, the individuals were in a very high stress situation. And this was their way of, of letting some of that out. They also believed that some of the callers uh, had mental health issues that were either unaddressed or exacerbated by the situation that they were witnessing. Um, and then uh, drugs and alcohol were the third one, uh, where they said that's probably a, a causative factor. I, if, if that's what you were asking me. Yeah, that's exactly what I was asking you, and I, I think that explains it very well. And, you know, I would think in the days of priority dispatch, you know, we know the, the questions that we're going to ask, you know, what happened, tell me, you know, go ahead and tell me exactly what happened. We have help on the way. I mean, it's one of the first things that we're telling people is that, uh, you know, an ambulance is already en route. Uh, but I think that makes all the sense in the world. Hey, let me ask you guys a question, too, if you don't mind. Are, are you guys familiar with the EMS Agenda 2050? Yes. Yes. So, yeah, I think one of the things there um, talks about our, our culture of safety and the Agenda 2050 kind of pushes our future organization to being people-centered. And, you know, we used to talk a lot about patient-centered. The agenda broad broadens this out to people-centered. In other words, everybody involved matters. Um, and one of the big principles is that EMS of the future needs to be inherently safe and effective. That means that your safety is built in and hardwired. Um, this this right here, to me, is an excellent beginning point um, because it involves our people and it involves the people that we're responding to. And we need to find ways to hardwire our safety of our people into the whole program. And this one, to me, is one of the areas where I think collectively as an industry, we can really work at developing a new culture. 
guys, this is how culture change happens. You, you can't shift a culture and a mindset of a provider uh, or, or a mindset of a profession all at once. You do it in, in little steps. You do it with things like uh, recognizing your own health uh, and, and the importance of your own health and, and the emotional toll and the PTSD and the next generation embraces that and, and doesn't put up with things that we put up with when we were young EMTs. And, and fatigue is no longer a badge of honor uh, it's something to be avoided. And running lights and sirens is no longer uh, the, the primary source of your adrenaline rush. It's something to be avoided. And the next step is is uh, accepting um, or refusing to accept that, that provider assaults and verbal abuse and physical abuse is part and parcel of a career in EMS. Uh, and, and by the time that EMS agenda for, the, uh, for 2050 is implemented, then I think what Ernie was talking about, you know, that, that a hardwired safety culture uh, will be largely in place because we're changing those perceptions a bit by bit. You know, just in the in the, the time we've had this podcast, Chris, how much have we seen the mentality shift about EMS provider mental health and wellness? You know, there's been a sea change. Um, and you can add, add many other things. Uh, things that we always consider dogma in EMS uh, to that, and, and, and it's slowly changing. All right, Ernie, so you've done a survey. You know how your workforce feels about this and, and, and the incidents of, uh, of assaults upon EMS providers at, at Austin-Travis County. What's your plan to do something about it? Well, that, that's a great question, and, and it's going to be one of the biggest challenges that we have looking, looking forward here. Uh, what, we, what we don't want is we don't want our people to think that this is just another survey and another committee. What we want to do is switch into action. So we're going to be using a, a technique that we learned from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement uh, called the Model for Improvement uh, to actually try to reduce the number of assaults that we're experiencing in, in our system. It's a, it's a team-based approach. It requires a little bit of training in the Model for Improvement and in improvement science. And uh, we're going to use facts. Uh, we're going to use the uh, plan, do, study, act process uh, to do rapid tests of improvement. Uh, we're going to gather data and try to use as much evidence as possible uh, to try to make a change. And uh, the, the, I think the most important part of the process is that we're putting the process right in the hands of the uh, individuals who are involved in the process. So uh, our field medics are going to be on the team. And they're going to be uh, guided by a coach that's going to help work through the issues. And uh, then we're going to implement the things that they come up with. And we're going to test them carefully and make sure that they work. And we're going to we're going to make the investments that we need to move forward. And that's how you get buy-in from your crews is is by involving them in the process uh, from the from the very beginning. Ernie, uh, we want to thank you for being on the show. And and uh, I want to applaud Austin Travis County EMS for yet again being another industry leader in, in addressing this uh, and and helping change the culture of EMS in a positive way. Uh, you know, so many of our our healthcare brethren are still being assaulted. Emergency department staff continually complain that that they're assaulted and and it's never pursued because. Uh, administration doesn't want to pursue it. And, and I applaud Austin Travis County for being proactive in this regard and taking this problem seriously. We're anxious to, to hear the uh, the results of your, your training when it's implemented, and we look forward to having you on the show again. 
But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Chris, Ernie, and I have been talking about provider safety and EMS and the incidents of assaults, both verbal and physical. How prevalent is it at your agency? How seriously does your employer take it? And if so, what are they doing about it? We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at EMS1.com. And for myself, co-host Chris Ciballero and Ernie Rodriguez of Austin Travis County EMS, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. You guys be safe, and we'll catch you next week.